ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Significant Watches, the only watch podcast coated in gold during a full moon. It's episode 29. In 1929, Talbert and Phils, later Francois Bourgel, filed their first patents to their famous waterproof cases. The Paddock Caliber 29535 PQS was the brand's first in-house perpetual chronograph, introduced in the underwhelming 5270. And last but not least, the time-only Paddock 324SC has 29 jewels. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, speaking of episode 29, let's send it to the gentleman dealer from Palm Beach. He's fresh out off of his trip to New York at the HSNY. Eric Wind, how are you doing, sir? Great. How about you, Tony? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Next up, it's Eric Wind Vintage's director of content and research, the coin watch, Don himself. Strictly Vintage Watches, Charlie Dunn, how are you doing? What's going on, guys? Good to hear from you. Finally, the Connecticut curmudgeon, Gabriel Benador. How are you doing up in Connecticut, sir? I'm doing well. Picked up some fun and interesting little pieces that are bringing a smile to my face. Do you want to give us a preview of, of any of them, or is this a well-kept secret? No, I bought the Cartman, uh, <laughs> whatever it is, the that Cartman watch. Unimatic. Yeah, yeah Unimatic, which has been really, which has been a lot of fun. Totally unexpected kind of fun. And then I got, I finally took delivery of my uh, Bell and Ross Alan Silverstein, which, you know, again, bringing a smile to my face. Nothing, nothing particularly big. Uh, I think there's some big stuff coming in the next couple of weeks, though, that I'll keep you guys up to date on as it trickles in. We always look forward to it. I saw the Connecticut or the Connecticut watch, the Cartman watch just last week as well. What a fun pickup, keeping watches fun as as is necessary in a time like this. We wanted to start this week. Go ahead, Eric. Where did you see it, Tony? Oh, at the Hodinkee. I was in Hodinkee. I was, at, or I was at the Hodinkee office in New York last week, and, and one of my colleagues picked it up. A lot of big Unimatic fans at, the, at Hodinkee HQ, for good reason, too. So, Eric, I want to keep it with you, actually, because speaking of New York, you were there just on Monday giving your Vintage Watches Part 2 speech or talk at the HSNY. Why don't you give us a little look at the room, what it was like, what you covered, and, and what the scene was like. Did you watch it yet, by the way, Tony, or not? Not yet, Eric. I was hoping you'd give me the inside scoop today. Yes. Well, Charlie was there. Charlie, do you want to actually talk about your experience? Sure. It was my first time over at Horological Society of New York, and really nice turnout. Got an awesome photo report up on Win Vintage. Tons of friends showed up. We got to meet people that I haven't met in person, but maybe online. I also got to see the library, which was very exciting. I only spent a few minutes up there, but next time I'm in New York, I'd like to spend the afternoon to try and linger in there and check it out. But no, it was a great time. Topics were mostly restoration, what's changed in the last few years. Eric had his watches that I'd love to own section at the very end, which I thought was cool. It's a good time. Yeah, I look forward to hearing your thoughts, Tony. It was kind of a part two, things that I wish I had time to share in 2019, things that have changed. You know, I gave a shout out to our podcast as well. So uh, shameless plug, as I said, but the feedback's been really wonderful. So uh, I've been very happy about that. I think the talk will go live on YouTube for non-HSNY members in early May. For HSNY members, they can access it now. I saw so many people posting from the halls of HSNY. seemed like the place to be on, on Monday night. Quickly, speaking of podcast plugs, before we get too far into it, 
we were named in a shameless plug. One of the eight podcasts all watch guys should be listening to by Mr. Porter. Did you guys see this? Yes, sir. All right. It says, with a focus on going behind the scenes at auctions in the world of watch dealing, significant watches provides a novel gop factor you won't find elsewhere. Condition has become the new rarity, says regular guest Mr. Eric Wind of the Florida-based dealer Eric, or Wind Vintage, I should say. So we appreciate the shout out from Mr. Johnny Davis. And I know Chris Hall, who runs a great newsletter called The Fourth Wheel on Substack, runs editorial on the watches side for Mr. Porter. So thanks, thanks to both of them for putting us in such esteemed company, Scottish Watches, Warren and Wound, Blamo, uh, and our friend Jeremy Kirkland were others on the podcast or on the list, as well as OT the podcast. Felix and Andy from Down Under. So esteemed company, we were, we were ranked on this list of, of eight podcasts. Thanks for that, guys. With that, anything else you want to say about HSNY, Eric? I mean, what, was some, what were some of the things you left on the cutting room floor that people won't see on the, on the presentation when they, when they went through, when they'll be viewing it on YouTube in the next couple of months? One thing that I could only touch upon a small amount was Patek Philippe dial restoration. 99% of kind of Pre-1960 Patek Philippe wristwatches and many pocket watches have cleaned dials, which I explained kind of what that means with the sanding, what to look for, the enamel. The reason they're cleaned is because they were designed to be cleaned essentially with hard enamel printing and scales. So you could make the dial look new, but the original printing is there. It's an unfamiliar concept for a lot of collectors regarding cleaned Patek Philippe dials and not something people really talk about. Charlie and I spent a week with Eric Tortella in Greece, mostly focusing on on Patek dial restoration. So, you know, the, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes I dedicated to that is just a fraction of, of what could have be, been shared with hundreds of photos. But it was a novel concept for many. I was just talking with Jeff Stein earlier today. And that was, you know, he's been a long time, 20 plus year collector, but he didn't even know about that sort of world of dial cleaning. Obviously he's focused on Hoyer. You don't really have cleaned Hoyer dials because they're printed. But um, yeah, that was something that I was able to at least touch upon and uh, could be subject of future great lengths of articles or talks, etc. What's the sort of learning there for collectors, Eric? I mean, it sounds like most dials you're saying are pre-1960 at least kind of clean. Does the market even differentiate between that because it's so sort of misunderstood or is it something that that people are just learning about and perhaps the distinction is not on the market yet between between dials that are and are not? Top collectors are definitely aware, but we're talking like top 100, top 50 collectors and dealers that focus on this. It's one of those areas where I feel like there's very asymmetric or limited information for the insiders versus the outsiders. So, um, you know, restoration and that that sort of thing. And, and what's interesting with Patek Philippe, like the reference 1518, famously there are 281 that were made probably less than five known to the market with dials that are untouched. And those we see sometimes are heavily spotted and worn, tropicalized in a way that most collectors wouldn't like. So this this world's almost like the vintage car world where you have kind of the older collectors that really want super restored 
cars, like Ralph Lauren and his cars, like trying to make them look like you're going back to 1927 to buy that Bugatti or something like that, drive it off the lot versus like more of the new generation of collectors that are okay seeing the chips from rocks and a little rust or, you know, paint chips and that sort of stuff and seats that are worn and that sort of thing versus trying to make it look new again. There are still a lot of collectors of 2499s and 1518s that they want the super restored version and wouldn't wear like this one watch that Christie sold a few years ago that was signed Serpico Ilaino that was untouched but had kind of age spots on the dial. I thought it was extremely cool because you just don't see a first series 2499 like that unrestored. But some people were not interested because it wasn't clean enough for them. This is kind of a very paddock-specific thing, right? This restoring of, or cleaning, I should say, of dials. And it's not something you see. You mentioned Hoyer, but you know, just the, the way other dials were made for these sport watches, especially. It's like, mostly, yeah, it's Vacheron and, and Patek where you see that engraved enamel. Occasionally Audemars, but most wristwatches were printed outside of like the 5516 perpetual calendar and things like that, which is hard enamel. But yeah, very few manufacturers got the most expensive dials of that time made, which involved that multi-step process and made by Cadran de Stern Frere, the Stern family that later bought Patek Philippe in the 30s, but continued with the dial company. Can you just talk for a second about why that process is, why it was like the process itself and, and what made it sort of more expensive and why only Patek and Vacheron and the top, top tier sort of invested in those dials? Yeah, there's uh it's an incredibly fascinating presentation Eric Tortella gave us on this topic, but essentially the processes that went into making a dial, the kind of pre-1941, like very early 1518s, you can kind of see this, or, or pocket watches where the Patek lettering is almost more digital looking and kind of spaced out versus like the what we think of with the Patek Philippe and co-signatures toward the end of the 40s. The earlier 40s and 30s signatures were actually hand engraved and then filled with that hard enamel that, you know, was fired and designed to last forever. So, you know, it would take quite a bit of time. Later, they had a process where they all were stamped and looked the same, but was still filled with hard enamel starting in the mid-40s through the late 50s, around 1960, is when they basically discontinued that process for for printed dials. But the idea was that the hard enamel lasts forever, and paint obviously can fade and wear out. So, you know, that's often why a lot of the Audemars Piguet wristwatch dials and Longines dials, things like that, even many Rolex dials from back in the day were reprinted just because of the fading of the, the printing. Well, speaking of Paddock, the next thing I wanted to talk about was kind of the auction market generally, but I wanted to talk specifically about Sotheby's had probably one of the first larger live auctions of the year. Just this past week in New York, you know, a live auction in March is kind of a new phenomenon, I think, as, as far as I remember over the past few years at least. Yeah, which is kind of interesting in itself, I suppose part of their larger luxury edit week, which is kind of the way Sotheby's does things. I, I went there when I was in New York last week and you know they had watches on the same floor next to um, like handbags and jewels and some other stuff and they had live sales that week. But kind of the the highlight of the sale, not price wise necessarily, but for me was they had one of 
Warhol's Paddock 2526s. It was a pink gold one that was double signed Serpico Ileno. And it was originally sold by Sotheby's actually in 1988 and had kind of sat in the same collection since then. It sold this week at Sotheby's for something like $101,000, I believe. So it was a really cool watch for for me to be able to go hands-on with. We got some great photos of it in Hodinki. I wrote an article kind of previewing just a handful of watches at that auction if you want to see some better photos. But I wanted to use that just as an opportunity to, to talk about the market more generally and, and kind of your thoughts on that sale and, and anything else that's happening right now. Eric, maybe we'll give it to you first. Yeah, exactly. It was cool to see you know a significant auction in March in New York, not the typical kind of approach. You know, I think... I'd be curious to hear what the Sotheby's specialists and staff thinks about it. But there's a positive to kind of being by yourself when you do something like this. It's not, the watch has got a lot of attention, obviously media coverage, et cetera. And it's not really drowned out like the June and December auctions when you have Phillips Christie's, Sotheby's, sometimes Heritage, et cetera, all kind of jammed into a three, four day window sometimes. So, yeah, I thought it looked good. By the way, the photo of the 3970, was that on your wrist with the sweater and the blue jacket, or was that someone else's? That was me, the 3970. Yeah, one of my, I think I, I mentioned this in a post, but you know, for my money, the 2526 and then the 3970 are probably the, the best sort of serially produced time-only and then complicated watches ever, at least by Paddock. So it was cool to see them all in a room together. There were a lot of other sort of modern and complicated paddocks as well, but those are always the standouts for me. And uh, the 3970 they had was platinum with a black dial, not any diamond indices or anything. So it's it's yeah, it's quite a cool black. look. And I, I'd not seen one before, but I think they're really cool. And it's probably one of the rarer combinations, I would imagine. Is that right? Yeah, the stick dials, definitely the most common is the black with diamond hour markers. But yeah, the stick dial is uncommon. The silver dial with stick marker is uncommon as well, which is great. Favorite complicated and favorite time only paddock, Eric? That's a hard. I, I love the I love the thirty nine seventy. I love the twenty four ninety nine. Obviously, wouldn't mind it in platinum. <laughs> the only only one in private hands. But for for me, like complicate. I for me personally, like a thirty nine forty. I would love. I feel like it's such a great reference. In a platinum, ideally from the '90s, with the the gold moon, I think, and the more ornate serif font. Time only. That's hard. I mean, I like five six fives a lot in steel. Probably. How about you? I the ones I mentioned are two of my favorites. I like the design of the twenty five oh eight dials a lot too. Yeah, um, that's true. Quite nice. That. Yeah, Charlie. Same that's... question for you. What do you think? Probably going to go with thirty nine seventy. White dial, platinum, exhibition case bag. I think that's, if you're going to wear a watch, complicated watch, that's as good as it gets. It's also very simple. And in some ways, you look at it and it's not complicated. Speaking of Andy Warhol, I like the 2503. I think that's kind of an interesting and um, radical design, particularly from the profile, because you really get to see the lugs and, you know, captivated by it. Time only, I mean, 2526. White dial, reference 600, all variations, diamond hour markers, even the enamel stuff. Yeah, I'd say actually time only watch, Suzanne Rohr, reference 600, Jean-Claude Vivier painting the 
what was it, the Genevan River, right? Right, right across the street from Paddock Philippe. What about you, Gabe? For wearable, complicated, I am going 5,004. I agree with you guys on 3970 format size-wise. Um, I'm just going for a little extra oomph on there. I think there are a lot of really cool dial combinations. I think with the the rose gold, black dial, the special orders, really interesting there in terms of look, a little bit more on the formal side. But there's so many great time-only watches that Patek has made. You know, I've been partial to the 570. I've had like the 565s. Even the, some of the 96s, I think, are, are extraordinarily beautiful. You know, there are a lot to choose from. I don't have a single favorite. What do you choose, Tony? 565 or the 570? You're going to choose the 565 because of the FB case. I always thought the 565 case was cool. Gabe's got a great 570, though, with kind of a, can you call it a Duray dial that kind of matches the case? I don't know if that's technically correct, but that's kind of what it feels like. Yeah, I actually got rid of it uh, a little bit ago. But uh, yeah, they had a Dore dial. It was was a very, very attractive combo. I thought it was one of the more beautiful variations that that they'd ever come out with. Pour one out for the 570, I guess. Hey, Eric, I had a question for you in regards to the 2526 while we're on it. You know, obviously the enamel dials are kind of the selling point. I'm wondering, is the kind of, you always hear about cracked enamel dials and stuff like that. Is that kind of overblown? And are these things... Are they pretty sturdy? I'm just wondering about dials on 2526s and if we could drill down into that for a second. Yeah, it's a good topic of conversation. There are definitely two schools of thought on these. You know, there's a school that says these things are incredibly durable. Don't worry, it's all overblown. They don't really crack and that sort of stuff. And then I've two personal experiences with dials cracking. One was a pink gold 2526 in, in rose, Serpico Elaino stamped, not the Warhol watch, was on a bracelet. I was part of Christie's New York. It was a watch we had sourced for the uh, New York auction. The watch went on tour to Asia, where there's a lot of 2526 nuts. You know, that was kind of the main area of collectors for 2526s, you know, five to 10 years ago were, were Asian collectors. So it made sense to ship it there. Rebecca Ross went with the watches to Hong Kong for the preview before our New York auction. And she sends an email. Basically, that was not even fully written out because it, she was so upset. She said she sent it to John Reardon and me and a few others. Our 2526 dial broken, dial shattered. What happened? That was basically it. It was like 10 words. And I'm like, what? When I see that? And she had pulled it out of the bag to put it on display. Every day you take the watches in and out, obviously. And she later showed a photo. I later saw the watch in in person in New York. And essentially the dial had shattered into maybe 20 to 30 pieces that were just shuffling around like a, almost like a box, like a puzzle box with puzzle pieces in it, just like pieces literally bouncing around, making a little sound. And uh, then the kind of investigation began. It seemed that the watch 
during a moment when someone was trying on the bracelet, those bracelets are not like a Rolex bracelet where it's like all one piece and you pull it out. Those bracelets are two pieces and then goes around and locks in place. During that kind of flip off, it fell, my understanding is only about six inches, but onto the hard glass top of a display case with watches in it. And then it shattered and the junior specialist who oversaw it was maybe so embarrassed or something that he just put it back, basically, <laughs> didn't tell anyone. He was no longer with Christie's, but uh, he tried to essentially conceal that happened. That's like a more severe situation, obviously, but it still seemed to only be like a six-inch impact. Granted, it was on a hard surface, but still... The second experience was I had looked at a 2526 for a client in Geneva at an auction house. Super detailed look at it. it was shipped to the United States after the auction. It did not have cracks. And it arrived and it had a crack kind of right across the dial. Hairline, but was definitely not there. Thankfully, I wasn't involved in purchasing it or anything like that, but you know, I, I I am always a little bit scared with those watches. Other people are like, I've worn it for years, no issues. I, I just, it's just something that makes me a little bit nervous. I'll take a good old fashioned metal dial any day. You can't parkour in your two five two six. Probably not. <laughs> it would never happen with a Richard meal. <laughs> yeah. Which would you guys rather wear, a spider dial Rolex or? A spider dial Patek Philippe. (laughs) (laughs) Depends on the condition of the spidering, I guess. Yeah, I think I'd rather have just spiders crawling on me and I have terrible arachnophobia. So, (laughs) Oh, you know what? I'm going to add another watch to my time-only fantasy Patek. The five, oh, you know this watch, Eric. It's the 1578R. Yeah, I love it. It's great. I will say last thing on the sort of on the twenty five twenty six conversation before we move on is I it may have been the first time I'd seen a pink gold one and it's probably one of the few watches that I, I kind of prefer the pink gold with the enamel compared to um I saw a platinum twenty five twenty six at Phillips a year or two ago and it, it sold for, you know, five hundred thousand dollars or something and this one, Andy Warhol sold for a hundred. So one of the cases where I wouldn't necessarily recommend the premium for the white metal in paddock just because of the way the enamel works with the case. But maybe that's just me. I, don't know. I had a similar reaction with the King Midas. I had the white gold set last year, the beginning of the year, men's and women's, but I just got a yellow. And somehow I feel like the yellow actually looks better because the white's very muted. Like It just doesn't have the same pizzazz for that watch. Even though I'm a white metal guy generally, I really prefer the yellow. Well, Eric, funnily enough, you've transitioned us wonderfully into our next topic that I wanted to hit on briefly was kind of a a trend report. I don't know if we're going to call it a new segment on the podcast, but I wanted to talk about vintage dress watches a little bit, or just vintage kind of even fashion watches almost, like the King Midas and Queen Midas. You've sold a couple of those. I've seen a couple heavy-hitting collectors, if you will, just kind of grabbing those up. Eric Pingcheng and others, I've, I've seen posting them. Kind of related, Charlie wrote, a nice article about vintage stone dial Piaget's. We've seen the polo kind of has has had a, a resurgence. The vintage polo, I should say, it's kind of nothing like the modern Piaget polo. Vintage dress watches seem to be having something of a moment. 
or maybe I'm reading into things a little bit too much. Charlie, maybe we could start with you here and talk about why you decided to focus on vintage Piaget, what attracts you to these watches, and, and what you're seeing as far as trends are concerned in the area. Yeah, I mean, it's the trend is kind of isolated to people who are interested in design pieces. With Piaget, it's just, I mean, these are incredible watches, and for whatever reason, we have two awesome examples still, three awesome examples still on the site. And, um, you know, just holding them in person, you're just like, wow, this is incredible for $3,000, $4,000, $5,000. You get integrated bracelet, really spectacular dials. And some examples, whether it's Coup de Paris or the integrated bracelet one, what you see is like equivalent to a paddock coin dial. You look at it and you're just like, wow, there's a lot of life in them. I don't know if they're having a moment. They are having a moment with some people who are discerning collectors and have interest in having something that's different than everybody else. But it's, um, it's just you look at them and you're like, what's, what is holding people back who are obsessed with Cartier to not jump on Piaget? Because you get better movements, arguably. Much more stylish timepieces and then a wide range of stylish timepieces if you're into that. Stone dials, texture. It's, it's an awesome world of vintage watches and uh, it doesn't seem to have a lot of people riding on the topic. So, yeah, I mean, what do you think, Eric? I agree 100%. Incredible value there. Great article by Charlie on the Win Vintage blog. But one thing I did touch upon or mentioned as a pet peeve is when people say there's nothing left to discover. In the world of watches, every, every day there should be something to discover and learn about. I name-checked you in the HSNY, Tony, as well, about uh, IkePod and uh, mentioned your article. But, you know, these are things that people may be aware of, but then you begin to think about it further and begin to investigate, and Tony writes a great article about it, and then we learn, and prices go up. But there's just so many interesting worlds to discover in, in watches, I think. You know, hopefully this podcast's going for a long time, and there'll always be something to talk about. The other thing about Piaget is they're just like every uh, walking around the Miami Beach Antique Show. They're kind of, I don't want to say they're everywhere, but they're out there, you know? And a lot of jewelry dealers just kind of have them. All of them have these cool bracelets, the cool stone dials that you're talking about. They're all a little bit different. So you're not going to necessarily see one exactly like whatever you buy, but they're around. They're a few thousand bucks and it's a great value proposition compared to a lot of the Cartier stuff that's, that's really exploded in price. Gabe, you going to be adding any uh, vintage Piaget, vintage King Midas to your collection anytime soon? Uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I, appreciate, I, I appreciate them <laughs> as objects, but somehow it just doesn't click on the wrist, and I'm trying to be a little bit more judicious with the things that I buy, things that I want to wear. Somebody said something really interesting to me you know, about wearing watches and driving your cars, riding your motorcycles, and it kind of has is my... My my motto for 2023, it's, you know, whatever you buy, you use for at least 2023. We'll see in 24. But yeah, I think it's not something that I would put on without wanting to get dressed up like Elvis in some way. So uh, yeah, I don't think that, that fits my uh, my personality too well. But no, I, I definitely appreciate them. I, I appreciate a lot of, you know, the quirky art deco stuff as well. But specifically to the conversation about 
there's stuff people say who say that there's nothing left to discover. I think those people are so mistaken and so wrong. And you guys know I love uh, military watches. And that is one of probably the least, you know, the segments of watch collecting that are the least paid attention to in really in the in the more obscure parts of it. And even for a long time, the American military watches were very much they weren't paid attention to. You know, Ben Russ has only really gained popularity recently. They weren't a big thing ten years ago. People kind of knew about them, but look at things like the Rhodesian military or the other militaries around that are that are quite interesting. I have a very interesting early nineteen hundred piece from the Belgian military. And you know, there's a lot of history there and there's a lot of different things that remain to be discovered by the masses and the collector public as a whole. So keep going forward. Yeah, no doubt they're an acquired taste. And I'm not sure I would go up to anyone and say, yeah, your first watch that you buy should be a, a vintage Piaget. It's for people that already have a few watches and are looking for something weird. But you know, my plea to Piaget would be like to re-release the real polo. The one with like the cool integrated bracelet and gold stripes or something like that. Stripe, the modern yeah, one yeah. is the modern one is too much of a it looks too much like an aquanaut if we're being honest with a less good bracelet. I think they kind of need to ride the wave and and re-release the real polo the way Vacheron did the two 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 last year. I don't know if they'll get to it because the the wave is so recent. Although I guess guys like Michael B. Jordan have been wearing vintage Piaget polos for a couple years now. I'd love to see a brand do something like that. And the thing is, like Piaget, you know, they've got some real watchmaking chops there when they try to. They make those ultra thin movements and whatever else. So I'd love to see a, I'd love to see a Piaget polo re-release, but I don't know if it'll come anytime soon. What do you think? I bet they would get more clout on um, social media and with collectors by releasing the polo in its original inception as opposed to chasing Bulgari and then running in front of Bulgari every other year and then Richard Neal. I mean, that seems to be the more interesting. I mean, they could have a moment like Cartier has had several times. It feels like if they drew on some of their really just design-driven heritage, the stuff that you're talking about, the stone dials, the polo, it's so design-driven, it feels like it'd be a huge hit with Hollywood types on red carpets and stuff like that. And it would trickle down to people like us. I mean, it already is, right? But if they did that in the modern brand space too, like, the last few years, all these brands think they need to have their Nautilus and Royal Oak alternatives and all that type of stuff. I'd love to see brands like Piaget, like Chopard, they kind of don't have a ton to lose by doing something different. For Piaget, it's doing something like this. Chopard, I'd love to see them focus on something like a traditional dress watch size and 34 or 36 millimeters that's totally underserved by like the modern Calatrava from Paddock and Vacheron and whoever else. There's no reason brands that have a little bit less to lose or are a little bit under the radar can't do things that are more traditional or or out there. And I'd love to see more of that. I think they'd get a lot of cred from collectors like us. And I think some of the stuff like a a vintage polo would would break through into the wider culture as well, just because of how funky it is. But you know, there's probably a reason I don't run these brands. These are probably all terrible ideas. I think the polo is I've noticed it a lot recently, the original and even on some uh, stylish Palm Beach women and very wealthy Palm Beach women. So, you know, went out and hunted it out and it looks sick. So, uh, yeah, I think I would agree it's beginning to have its moment as well. Yeah, and none of these people even care, like, probably like, oh, what time is it? Like, who who knows? Like, no one's setting these things. No one cares. They just look freaking awesome. 
hey, those are kind of my new watch predictions or hopes for 2023. Watches and Wonders is just a few weeks away. Gabe's going to be there. I'm obviously going to be there as well. Anything you guys want to see? It could be general. It could be specific from from any brands or maybe just the watch industry at large. Charlie, I know you don't think about modern watch brands at all, but Gabe, Eric, anything you guys would love to see besides, I guess we're, we're really petitioning here for the, for the polo. We'll, we'll move on from that though. Yeah, I'm just excited to see what, what the indies are going to put out this year. I think they're really having a, a special moment the last couple of years. So I hope that they don't disappoint and they come in with something innovative and potentially at a more palatable price point now that they're kind of hitting their stride in terms of selling out all the current stock at retail level. So that's my hope. I know a couple of things that are coming out that'll be really cool. I want to see the Jevdet Rekshepi in person. So hopefully I'll get there a couple of days early and saunter over to see him. And I'm sure they're totally sold out, of course. But, uh, you know, that seems to be something that I want to see in person because the pictures, I don't think did it justice, but that's pretty much it for, for me. I'm excited to see some of the, you know, different watchmakers who whom I'm a big fan of. So that'd be cool. Eric, anything in particular you care about? I don't know. I mean, I think we'll see something with the Daytona, of course. I would expect the uh, Platona to be changed or discontinued in some way since it's been out 10 years now, 60th anniversary. I think, you know, Vacheron, it'd be sick if they did a Steel 222, not just gold. I mean, I think that'd be very interesting. The others, I, I don't, I don't know. We'll just see. Nothing's getting me too too thrilled. I don't know if we've seen maybe the end of all the green dials we've seen the last couple of years. Maybe maybe there'll be a new color palette for a lot of different manufacturers, like Jevdet uh, Rishepi's kind of dial color we we talked about in the last episode. But yeah, I think um, it'll be. Uh, I'm hoping we get now that RM has come out with the thinnest mechanical watch that we can maybe get beyond all that stuff and <laughs> stop with the trying to let's hopefully not see too many NFTs and uh, QR codes on watches and all this stuff. Hopefully uh, we get back to simplicity, not too much text on the dial, etc. Yeah, I, I, I hope that text on the dial kind of gets done away with as much as possible. I think it's just so out of place, you know. I told the watchmaker who's making me another dial in a different language, and I said, could you put your signature as well in the other language just so that way it kind of remains uniform? <laughs> you know, because I used to I used to joke around and ask them to do their their signatures in, in zeros and ones because at least it's all numbers. It's uniform. But uh, yeah, <laughs> that would be a good one. Eric, what do you think about the market right now? Do you feel like we're hitting a kind of a bottom on on some of the prices? Yeah, we're beginning. I mean, a couple things. I actually touched on this in the talk too, but I think we're beginning to see some, one metric I gave to understand what's happened with the market over the last couple of years is just supply on Chrono24, which is kind of our best marketplace, if you will, for high-end watches. For a number of watches, it more than doubled the supply between last February to this February. Between February to March, we're starting to see a decrease in in inventory, whether it's Daytona's subs, 5711s. And with that, 
the old supply and demand uh, curves, but we were beginning to see prices go up a little bit on 5711s, for instance, which is kind of the canary in the coal mine, I feel like. But the Platinum Daytona is actually increasing a little bit as people are interested to see what happens with the watches and wonders and the anticipation that watch will be changed. So yeah, I think it's still not that easy to sell six-figure watches in this market. There's just a lot of uncertainty there. The lower end, quote lower end, but kind of for me, 80K and below is still flying if it's a good watch in good condition at the right price. So yeah, I think people with the higher end watches just need to be patient and uh, you know we'll see what happens. Eric, do you want to talk about one particular high-end watch right now from a, uh, a certain Scott Carpenter? Yeah, inspired by uh, Tony Trena's articles about gold speedmasters at Hodinkee, I was able to source Scott Carpenter's gold speedmaster. Just the story of that dinner in Houston uh, in 1969, all the astronauts from the original Mercury 7 to the Apollo 11 astronauts kind of gathering together. What an epic sort of evening. And Scott Carpenter was interesting because he wasn't just a pilot. He was an aquanaut. He had done incredible research with the Navy underwater. He was really uh, a man's man, if you will. With the specialization in the military now, you wouldn't have like someone be a test pilot and an astronaut and be an undersea explorer and all that sort of stuff today was very interesting time. He saw a lot of his colleagues die in accidents as test pilots, one of the most dangerous professions of that time. And uh, extremely interesting man. So I think we've seen that just in the last year, those gold speedmasters really become sort of the iconic, most expensive speedmasters in the world, which is interesting, kind of overtaking the 2915s. But it has to do with the provenance and the history and kind of the best of the best in terms of Omega. Really, really special thing. And much better than the uh, Moonswatch Moonshine. So there you go. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. Is this where Gabe gets his, you know, they've got a pitch clock in spring training now. I think we're going to put a pitch clock on on Gabe and he gets 30 seconds. Did I, oh, did I say? I didn't say Gabe, did I? Whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm so frustrated with the fact that we're going to give him some time to talk about the Moonswatch. <laughs> you, can, you can have 30 seconds right now if you'd like to complain about the Moonswatch. They sold a million watches last year of the Moon Swatch. I mean, that like I I read that and I was flabbergasted. I mean, just, and then they changed a, a hand with all that money. They changed a hand. End of rant. That's it. Like I don't oh, think that, yeah. I mean, that's implied. But imagine you sell a million units, which is more than like yeah. Just that's it. They should have made it waterproof. I wonder what the margins are on the moon swatch. If anybody knows, please let us know. That would be, I just kind of want to calculate what the profit is because they don't have to do any of the R&D if they're just swapping hands anymore. So it's all paid for. My favorite uh, kind of response was Romaric of Sakan Sakan saying, regarding today's event, here is my official statement. Replacing only the seconds hand on a watch and then calling it quote, a new product, unquote, is a disrespectful and lazy scam. 
I know because I invented it. Swatch, you rock, and I love you. Your watches too. <laughs> Remark, second, second. That was awesome. That was amazing. And he framed it, if you guys didn't see it, it's on it's on Instagram as like a press release, like a formal exactly. press release. It, it's amazing. I thought it was, it was the best one I'd read. It, it he really um, he never ceases to to sort of satisfy with what he does on Instagram. It is also this month is the 40th anniversary of Swatch, so you know what better way to celebrate, I suppose. That said, you know the gold. I think Revolution did a, a rendering of like you know what if they did the gold astronauts watch, um, which would have been yeah. quite cool. I think it would have cost a little bit more than 290 bucks or whatever to coat the whole case in gold. But you know it's funny how these things work. We saw three of those gold astronauts watches in the past year now with Eric, and I, I'm told that three more are going to be coming to auction next month in April. So it's funny how a few watches and a few million bucks can can really shake a few loose. So it'll be interesting. Exactly. It'll be interesting to see that. And in the meantime, I'm excited for I'm excited that the Scott Carpenter one was was kind of consigned through you, Eric, or bought through you. And it's really cool to see that. In the meantime, hey, if you're going to be in Geneva for Watches and Wonders, hit up. Gabriel or myself, and we'd be happy to to perhaps entertain you, or at least meet up for something. We have seventy reviews now in the Apple Shop or in the Apple Store. Here's a good one: a rare insider's look at the vintage something. I can't see the whole headline. As someone who is relatively at the beginning of their journey learning about mechanical, mostly vintage watches, I came to this podcast through the host's excellent sites: Wind Vintage, Strictly Vintage Watches, and Rescapement. In addition to those fantastic resources. The podcast offers a looser, more fraternal, raw view of the world of vintage watches from people who are deeply embedded in researching, collecting, writing about, and selling them, not to mention wearing and obsessing over. It goes on and on, but shout out to Anu Jindal for a five-star review, I would say. And thank you so much. And hey, DM us on Instagram if you can find us or if you're on Instagram, and we'd love to hear from you. Charlie, anything else? One of our friends. Got his wife to review the podcast and leave a review, which I thought was awesome. I'll read it. Holy Crickets is the title of the review. My husband turned me on to this podcast because of his extreme horological obsessions and the desire to have me understand a little about what he is always rambling on about. Well, I still don't understand. The horological homies still kept me interested throughout. A great listen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, wife of B Lane KC, for your help and for your assistance. <laughs> oh, nice. Friend of the program. We were also told we had to retire the horological homies by frequent listener and watch celebrity Fred Savage. So that's why you haven't been hearing it lately. He said it's too cringeworthy, which I, I may or may not agree with, but to say, <laughs> we'll do nothing to, we'll do anything to satisfy the, the listeners. Is he running for Congress or something? His, his brother, Ben, is. Oh. Ben is running for Adam Schiff's seat in uh, California. So it'll cool. Be so we'll have like a brother of a watch aficionado potentially in Congress. Yes, that's what you got. You gotta, you gotta make a get him a watch for his campaign, Eric. You gotta pair him with the right one. I mean, I'm sure you have rowing blazers. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize this. Charlie pointed this out to me that Ben Savage, to my generation at least, is is probably more famous from Boy Meets World. I didn't realize that was his brother. Yeah. But now that I look at them both together, I, I don't know how I, how I could have missed it. Which did yeah. you like more, the college years, or the elementary years? The college years or the elementary years? Probably the elementary years. For sure. Yeah. For me, it was more relatable at the time, too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. I liked uh, Saved by the Bell as well in the morning. That was a good one. 
yes, these are the classics, as well as Full House, and we could go on and on. Did any of you watch Doug? Which one? <laughs> watch what? Doug. Doug. And yeah. yeah, yeah, Skeeter as well. I love Doug. Skeeter oh, was God, great. Of course. What was up with that? I, I know. <laughs> I know. Who was, who was his uh, bully that had like the red oh, hair? What was that guy's yeah, name? I forget. But Patty yeah. Mayonnaise was his girlfriend. Yeah, she was great. <laughs> <laughs> minor minor TV note. I was watching a show called Next in Fashion on Netflix just the other day. Yes. With Tan France. Did you see the Rowing Blazers watch on yes. it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's the only reason I wanted to bring it up. I started writing James and he didn't know. He was like, oh, thanks for spotting my watch. I wrote him and I said, nice watch. And then I said, yeah, I helped design it. And he's like, what? <laughs> and he's writing me back. And we started having a long conversation. He's like, I loved the checkerboard bezel. It's one of my favorite oh, watches. Awesome. So that was cool. Very, very exciting. That's awesome. Love to hear it. Well, this is made for a mediocre episode 29, I suppose, <laughs> but we got through it. So hopefully my hopefully my intro was edited into something useful. We'll probably just cut the whole thing and we'll try it again next time. But signing off for the Horological Homies, there you go, Fred. We'll talk to you again on episode 30 and DM us, leave those reviews, and, and give us some Q&As for next time and maybe we'll do some sort of extended Q&A one of these days. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.